Welcome back to the big show. This is as Lutheran as it gets. And we, as always, are your hosts, Pastors Christopher Gillespie. I'm here, ready to go. And I am Pastor Donovan Riley, and we are here with Southern Rock and Funerals and Gratitude on our mind today. And other things. And other things. That we will keep keep to ourselves. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, it, it may sound strange to some of you, but we actually do have filters. Mm. They're flimsy. It's true. They're thin membranes. As soon as we push the record button anyway. Sure. Absolutely. Mm. Most of the time. Mm. We're going to jump back into Philip Melanchthon's Lochi Communes, the low co- the low communes, if you will. Melanchthon, as you could say. Melanchthon. Mm-hmm. Black mountain, black earth. That's what Melanchthon means. Black I thought it was earth, black, black forest. Black, mountain. black forest. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, that's it. That was black. Look it up. <laughs> Schwarzfeld was the German. There we go. Schwarzfeld. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. Black earth. So we're going to jump back into the power of the gospel, and now we are going to move into a section that he has subheaded, grace, because, well, it's about grace. And as you can imagine, before we even dive into it, written in 1521 at the age of about 22 years old, Philip, in the excitement of what is full-blown reformation, so to speak, writes this loci, and especially in regards to grace then, what we can expect is his critique Mm -hmm. of the late medieval Roman Catholic definition of grace and thereby, in the present tense, a critique of a modern Protestant definition of grace, which is eerily similar to a late medieval Roman Catholic definition of grace. We've talked about it on this show and we've talked about it in other contexts as well, that uh, it's become one of those, much like faith, you know, kind of a, Mm -hmm. it's a word that is in search of a meaning for many. Right. Right, not not scripturally, but but in our actual application of it. So there's so many right. graces, right? We talk about right. all the different grace, ways we can use grace, right? And the scripture is a little bit more precise about it, I would say. Right. Yeah. So let's dive right in. This is page eighty-six on grace, edited by Wilhelm Pauk. This is the Library of Christian Classics Ichthus edition. It's available on Amazon if you would like to purchase this copy, this version. Show notes. Thank you. So let's dive in. Grace. Just as the law is the knowledge of sin, so the gospel is the promise of grace and righteousness. Therefore, since we have spoken of the word of grace and righteousness, that is the gospel, the principles of grace and justification should be included here. For in this way, the nature of the gospel can be more fully understood. At this point, one may rightly remonstrate with the scholastics. They have shamefully misused that sacred word grace by using it to designate a quality in the souls of the saints. The worst of all offenders are the Thomists, who have placed the quality grace in the nature of the soul and faith, hope, and love in the powers of the soul. How old womanish and stupid is the way they dispute about the powers of the soul. But let these godless men demean themselves and pay the penalty for their trifling with the gospel and despising it. You, dear reader, pray that the spirit of God may reveal his gospel to our hearts. For the gospel is the word of the spirit, which cannot be taught except through the spirit. Isaiah says this in chapter 54, verse 13. All your sons shall be taught by the Lord. That's Hmm. pretty straightforward. This is uh, pretty intense from Mr. Melanchthon. Right? Yeah. And by by grace, the word uh, was what? Charis in Greek, right? Charis, yeah. Charis, and then... uh, Grazia. Grazia in Latin. Mm Mm-hmm. But by going after Thomas, by Thomas, he means uh, Thomas Aquinas, right? Those who follow after Aquinas. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we talked about, mm, mostly in regards to Augustine, right? That the, that the the soul or the character of the person has some like, has still some remnant of pre-fall, pre-fall nature, character. And then the spirit comes along and kind of inflames that. Right. The burning heart of Christ image, if you've ever seen Bonaventura, mm. the the depiction of Bonaventura's uh, theology, the burning heart of Christ, is that 
what grace does is it inflames that spark, that synteresis within us. Mm. And when that spark is inflamed, it actually increases our free will, our choice. I'm struck here how uh, Thomas Aquinas takes it to a totally another level that you've also have faith and hope and love. You have this capacity. It doesn't mean you exercise it, but you have the capacity for these things. Right. It's the house on, it's the house in which grace enlivens the soul, faith, mm. hope, and love. Mm. And therefore grace is a quality. It is a substance. It is a thing that is infused into you by the Holy Spirit. And when it is infused, when it is injected into you, this, this quality, then faith, hope, and love are, what do you want to say? They, they, again, they're inflamed, they blossom and they grow. But you have, you have them already. Right. They're, they're dormant or they're like embers in a fire pit. They're covered by ash. Mm, okay. They don't necessarily give off a lot of heat and energy, but they are still there as embers. They just need to be blown upon by the Holy Spirit the breath mm. of God, mm. and then they will, again, be inflamed. But I think we've talked about how faith, hope, and love, at least according to the scriptures, are fruits of faith, um, but then that means they're completely external to us. They're given mm -hmm. to us. Right. Um, fruits of what? The work of the Spirit to make uh, alive what was dead. Right. If God's the, faithfulness creates faith. God's hope in the promise creates hope. God's selfless, self-giving love through Christ creates selfless, self-giving love mm. in Christ. Out, outside in, right? Right. It's always outside in. It's always through his word spoken to us by the preacher. He is sent and the spirit works through instruments, not through agency. This is, again, the language of agency that we've talked about. Yeah. Something's happening inside of me. And then depending on what version of the sevenfold grace is being applied or used or inflamed in me by the spirit then I need to act upon that. Yeah. And because here, to whom much is given, much is to be expected. I mean, here, grace is external um, in Thomas's, you know, approach. Grace comes from the outside, but then enlivens what's already present inside. Right, right. Mm. Yeah. But old womanish and stupid. Yes. Those are, those are pretty intense words. Right? Old womanish, stupid. Hmm. They dispute about the powers of the soul. Instead, he says, no, listen to the prophet. All of your sons will be taught by the Lord. You have to be taught or you don't know it. You don't have it. Right. That's the point. That's why Aristotle has no word for sin. Plato has no word for sin because sin must be revealed to you. So must the law and gospel. So must faith, hope, and love. So must Jesus, by the way. So what's even close for them as far as sin goes? Do they have something like inadequacies or brokenness? Or? Sin is an accident. It's concupiscence, misplaced love. Oh, I see. You got your loves in the wrong places. And sin is an accident. And until you are acted upon by the prime mover, God, mm. you will continue to make these accidents. You will and the accident that God, it's like if you have a bottle on the table and you push it over, the accident is the bottle falls over, but I'm still the prime mover. I still have to push the bottle oh, over see. to make it fall. You're using the philosophical definition of accident. Right, because that's what Thomas uses in yeah, the Summa. Yeah. And likewise then, for Thomas and the Thomists, God must act upon us, the prime mover, the first cause, and then as a consequence, the accident will be faith, hope, and love, not sin. <laughs> because concupiscence being the wrong kind of love, misordered love, God's grace would be the right kind of, the rightly ordered kind of love. Hmm. <laughs> Which would be obedience to his law. Whereas the scripture, the story of, you know, of all mankind is death and resurrection. I mean, that's right. what's needed. Not, not reordering or kind of straightening you out. Right. Hmm. This is why Luther argues that, that sin is not a misplaced love. It's the wrong faith. Because the first commandment is about, well, who do you fear, love, and trust more than anything? Trust, pistis, pistuo, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. faith. Trust, faith, same thing, belief. So for that's why Luther argues against Augustine, argues against Thomas, against the everyone, <laughs> every late medieval theologian and saying, no, like misplaced love is not the problem. In fact, love is a fruit of faith. Mm. So therefore, and he's very logical in this, yeah, Luther yeah, is. Yeah. If your faith is wrong, if you have faith in the wrong God, then then as a consequence, your love will also be in, in the wrong things and used for the wrong purposes. But if your faith is in true God, then your love will be true love. And so faith in a, in a dead God or an idol 
brings death. Right. So, uh, okay. And thus, the way mm. in which that is achieved is through the perversion. Instead of selfless, self-giving love, it is selfish love, incurvatus in se est, mm -hmm. curved in on oneself, selfishness, self-centeredness. Yes. Faith rips us out of ourselves and puts our belief in this object, this person, this man who is God, Jesus the Christ. And then likewise, our love is ripped out of us and placed in the object, the beloved, our neighbor, and God. Yeah. And by the way, as Luther explains in his writings on vocation, our neighbor is the hands and masks of God. We had a, I had a funeral yesterday and... Um, you know, that's the common move is that we want to cele celebrate life and then have what we call a eulogy or good words about the dead right. and talk about their works. And the, the challenge of that is the more we talk about them, the less we talk about Jesus and what Jesus did. For right. Even, even though our confession is those works are uh, the fruit of faith, they're, they're good, mm -hmm. done in the forgiveness of sins. Right. The more we talk about them, the less, the less our attention is upon uh, actually resurrection right upon the hope and actually upon grace then the true grace right and to speak pastorally and i don't mean this in a condescending or flippant way no matter how much you talk about the corpse that corpse is going to remain a corpse mm. jesus is the resurrection of life so let's speak of the resurrection because he will raise that corpse from the dead he will breathe new life into that body well but kind of like how we use language to kind of soften the reality of death and say well passed away right. or has gone to a better place or something like that yeah we lost him we lost him yeah or, or they're lost to us um you know this is my first experience to be in a congregation where the the, the principal uh, practice is cremation and it, and it seems to me i mean i don't know that it's always done in in a like denial of faith kind of way mm -hmm. um maybe it's just passive or it's economic but um, it does soften actually the reality of death in a way because mm -hmm. there's no body. There's you know, no like, body. You, I try to refer to you know ashes in a little cardboard you know cylinder as a body, and mm -hmm. it's hard. I mean, it, it, it I is. think people probably are like, Pastor, you're nuts. Right. That's not the body. There are some cultures uh, in the past. I don't know, probably in the present too, but in the past, there are some cultures that believe that if the body is incinerated that that's actually a desecration of the body, that your body is given to you by the gods. Well, Rome did. You're, right, your body is basically yeah. a sacred vessel. And so to destroy it or deface it is to desecrate the body and actually prevent that person from entering into paradise. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, and I don't I don't deny that, okay, the Lord can restore the restore this. I okay, fine. He he formed dust and Right. But the confession there is a little bit um challenging. I mean you're you've been burned and crushed. Right. It's <laughs> a little jaggy. It's yeah. pretty destructive. I, right. Now embalming's not all that great either, but you know. Right. And death is destructive. There's no way around that either. But but you you did it. Well, I was gonna say it is interesting. The Egyptians popularized popularized embalming thousands of years ago. And for all of our technological advances, we still just pretty do much it do it the way. same way, same chemicals, the whole deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Strange days, and that's uh, maybe to wrap this thought up. This rabbit trail is no matter how many different ways we see to formulate death, the whole process itself, we just keep returning to the same processes because there's nothing you can do to really wrap your head around death or come to terms with it. In any well, and that was my point when talking about works or talking about your own capacity is that I mean, we just try to set it aside and, right. and, and uh, implicitly deny that it's actually true that it's that mm -hmm. you're dying or that you're dead, right? You right, know, just somehow try to give yourself some I don't know leeway or way out that right. isn't through resurrection through the gateway right. of death yeah right hmm. and there's such a hopelessness when the law is spoken in a way that doesn't bite is not spoken lawfully in the sense of as he says the law is the knowledge of sin the gospel is the promise of grace and righteousness so you're accidentally have done wrong and here's this weak grace that right makes it okay right that's what eulogies typically are hmm it's a very weak law. It's a, it's a justification of the person through their works. And then a very weak kind of grace in that we have to wrap it up by saying, but I know that he's in a better place now, or she's up in heaven gardening with her sisters, or he's looking down on us from his favorite fishing hole with uncle Jack or something like that. Mm -hmm. right. It's neither law nor gospel. It's more like law that gums at you 
and gospel that paws at you, but it has no real, no bite. It has no traction. It, it, it leaves you actually feeling worse than before. Yeah. yeah. Because there's a whole, it's just hopeless. That's all. It's hopeless. It's, it's like you go through the, if you go to a funeral and you start off with that kind of a eulogy, by the time you get to the committal, that open grave is just, it's just an open maw. Yeah. Just, it's bottomless versus the resurrection when the pastor, you get the eulogy out of the way and then the pastor stands up and, and says the invocation and then you're off to the races with God's own child, um, uh, baptized into your name most yeah. holy. The remembrance of baptism. That Yeah. Right. The, the pastor preaches John's gospel, preaches on I am the resurrection of the life. Mm -hmm. The baptismal or the funeral rite in the LSB, Lutheran service book, is just solid on baptism. You get to the committal and the pastor's there with his salt or his dirt. He makes the sign of the cross on that casket. You lower it down into there. In my experience anyways, that grave isn't bottomless anymore. It's only about, it's a doorway. That's what we talk about. Well, that's what the know. psalmist has. Yeah. Right. It's a doorway to eternal life. It's a doorway to paradise. Mm -hmm. And so now instead of this bottomless pit that just swallowed up this body, now it's a door. And there's a hope in that. There's a comfort to that. Right. And to, and to suggest that there's some capacity or some good that follows them that will work their resurrection apart from yeah. Jesus. I mean, right. that, I don't think that's explicitly said, but it does seem to be in the background. Right. It's like, an undercurrent. We have this hope, hopefulness in someone or something other than Jesus. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, it gnaws at you because you're like, it's actually hopeless. It's vanity. It does, it's, right. It's like saying, well, his soul's in heaven. I know he's in a better place. Do you though? Or is that just wishful thinking? Yeah. It's not hopeful. It's wishful. Yeah. Because I have something more solid, more concrete and real. And it's the body and blood of Jesus. Hmm. Come get some. Mm -hmm. Every Sunday, every time you call until you too enter into the resurrection with the person you just buried. It's like the writer of the Hebrews says about the blood of Jesus speaking a greater word than the blood right. of Abel. You're like, right. really? Blood speaks? <laughs> yes. It's powerful stuff. All creation praises the name of the Lord. Yeah. So then Melanchthon continues. That was, by the way, just his intro. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, here's number one. Number one, he says, in the writings of the New Testament, the word grace Grazia in the Latin, is commonly used for the Hebrew word chen. This, the translators of the Septuagint, often change to charis, as in Exodus 33, verse 12. You have also found favor, which is grazia, in my sight. But it means plainly what favor means in Latin, and would that the translators have had preferred to use the word favor to grazia. This is such an important point. I want to stop. Mm -hmm. The word chen is a relationship word. It's a relational word. To show someone favor or to show something favor is to say, I prefer you. Oh, I favor okay. you. I am delighted by you. You're my favorite. That's where the word favorite comes from. Yeah. Most favored. So does that tie in well then with the, like the ironic benediction and, and yes, the face absolutely. of God is to have that relational yes. character restored? Exactly. Versus what he's saying, the word grazia, especially the way it's used in the Middle Ages, grazia is a quality. It's a thing. And so now all these questions come along of, well, I have shown grace to you. And as we noted at the beginning of this, what does that even mean? You have shown me grace. <laughs> does that mean that I got a raise? I got a bigger house? I married the girl of my dreams? My congregation loves me? Like, what is grace? Mm -hmm. Is it the love of Jesus Christ? Well, how do I get that love? How is it communicated to me? Favor is very simple. It's very straightforward. I like you. <laughs> I am well pleased with you sometimes. It's translated. Mm -hmm. Versus charis, which as he says, it's lacking <laughs> as a translation choice. And Philip, above all people, would be the person to ask about translation choices. He is a master of language. So the again this is probably the roots then of the idea this you know um in in the vulgate the latin translation of the old testament right the the roots of the idea that grace is a substance versus yeah. um a relationship right or the favoring god's favoring of you right and we've talked about this late medieval theology is based on the premise of how does one idea relate to another idea mm. luther's premise is how does christ relate to the sinner to me 
One is a question of ideas, and in, and I think you pointed out injecting meaning into them. They're they're ideas in search of a meaning, which we provide, by the way. Versus, <laughs> what is the relationship of Christ to me? Begs the question: Where's Jesus? That's a relational question. Yeah, they're two different questions. Yeah, very much so. That also maybe then helps understand. Oh, I don't know, like Jacob and um, the blessing of his sons, and and sure. it's it's not about giving them things. But it's actually, it's about, he's establishing relationships, um, especially in regards to, you know, I mean, they're all going to get their portion of the inheritance. It's not really about the right. stuff, right? But this is on right. his deathbed. He's giving his promises. But like, you know, um, to each he, especially like to Judah, he has the promise, right? Right. Of salvation. And it's, and it's like, you're, you are favored. Or, or actually maybe the angel speaking to, um, to Mary, right? Gabriel to Mary. There you go. Yeah. Yeah highly favored one <laughs> like what does that mean yes and right God has looked upon your lowly estate right yes mm. exactly nice there's 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 more to it than just here's some stuff and it's going to change it's going to change the way you behave it's like no that's not that's not it at all <laughs> well and as we know stuff doesn't really change you that much not for the positive right also within the Hebrew, I'm thinking through my mm -hmm. Hebrew lexicon at this point too, it also means mercy and clemency and pardon. Yeah, it's a, it's got a wide semantic domain, as they say. Right. It's not just a matter of, um, I think a lot of people unearned or undeserved favor. Grace is usually translated like that. Like it's unearned, it's God's unearned love or unearned favor or something like that, which is true to a certain extent, but it's a very limited definition versus no, it literally means that God has shown you faithful loving kindness, that he has declared clemency, he's pardoned you of guilt. And it goes to the point of promise, that the word, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine on you, be gracious to you, the Lord look upon you with favor, literally means you have been granted clemency, you have been pardoned yeah. for all of your trespasses, for your lawlessness. And therefore the chain, depending on how you want to trans or pronounce it, I think it's chain with a hard E in there. Mm -hmm. Um it communicates an immense amount of information, but it's a relational word. So yeah. it, all of that, that it communicates to the, uh, the person that's hearing this, what it's communicating is that promise that God is faithful, loving, kind, that he pardons sinners. He covers your guilt. Like all of that, it's like Jesus saying shalom to the disciples following the resurrection. Mm, that right. word doesn't just mean chill out, relax. Shalom encompasses all of Peace, daily bros. bread. Right. It's like, relax, people. Take it easy. No, it's like shalom encompasses, like I said, all of daily bread. It's connected to this favor, too. Exactly. You're at peace with God because um, he's, right. he's favored you. Yeah. Right. One's a consequence. Mm -hmm. Shalom is a consequence of, of hen, hen. There you go. So, th so then, to continue then, gratia is limited, but it means plainly what favor means in Latin and would that the translators had preferred to use the word favor to gratia. For favor, them. by the way. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Favor. <laughs> Por favor. For then the sophists would have lacked the occasion for going foolishly astray on this topic. And by sophist, he does really mean the late medieval mm -hmm. scholastic theologians. Yeah, his, his friends. Have we ever defined sophist on this podcast for mm. folks? Who, well, Sophia, right? Which means wisdom. Basically, it's people, it's people who will tell you what you want to hear to make money or to enjoy a status, like a favorite status in like court or in the church. But yeah, sophist from basically... They speak wisdom to the highest bidder. The, the parallel to the New Testament would be probably Pharisee or maybe scribe too. Right. And in the Old yeah. Testament, it's the false prophets. If you think of the, the prophets of Jezebel, for example, in the Old Testament, or, or the false prophets in the book of Zephaniah, what do they do? Well, they tell the, the king whatever he wants to hear because they like to enjoy their favorite status at court. That's a sophist. Mm. Whereas Jeremiah or Zephaniah or Jesus would be the non-sophistic preachers because they go in and say, this thus says the, the Lord, this mm. is the way it is. Yeah, not with your many words. Right. I think uh, Luther refers to them in the catechism as Lord Pigbelly. Oh. That would be another way to say it is that, again, they're just telling you what you want to hear so that they can fill their stomach with good things. Ah, uh, yes, they like, itching ears. They like pleasure and comfort. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Yes, they, they go hand in hand, sophists and people with itching ears <coughs> for novelty. So to continue then, therefore, just as the grammarians say that Julius favors Curio, 
when they mean that in Julius is the favor with which he has befriended Curio, so in Holy Writ, grace means favor, and it is the grace or favor in God with which he has befriended the saints. That's a nice way to say it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Grace to you and favor. What a friend we have. From God our Father. Right. Literally, God comes to you and says, I no longer, again, as Jesus says in the farewell discourse in John's gospel, you're my friends now. Mm -hmm. You're not my disciples. I call you friend. It's powerful language. Right. When you consider that the creator of the universe comes to you and goes, you're my buddy. You're my friend. (laughs) Buddy Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Jeepers. (laughs) (laughs) Google it, kids. Yeah. Jump the shark. Uh, Those Aristotelian figments about qualities are tiresome. There, he calls it out right there. Their definition of grace is from Aristotle, not from scripture. Yeah, and and we, I think we've talked about it, I can't remember where, but but Thomas is very much, um, you know, reclaiming Aristotle through the right. Arabian uh, reclaiming of Aristotle. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the Moors bringing it up through uh, North Africa into Spain and then into mm-hmm. Europe. Yeah, they, pretty much they're the ones responsible for um, preserving Aristotle through the Ar- Arabic and Plato. And Plato, yeah. And Xenophon and others, actually. Yeah. A lot of the classics. Yeah, we just don't have, we don't have great yeah. manuscripts for the most part. So grace is nothing else, if it is to be most accurately defined, than God's goodwill toward us or the will of God, which has mercy on us. Like I said, that's, that encapsulates the Hebrew perfectly. What is grace? God's goodwill toward us. Mm-hmm. If God is facing you, if God's face is shining upon you, that means he wants to be your friend. He has nothing but goodwill toward you. And he wants to tell you, I pardon you. I pardon your lawlessness. I pardon your injustice. This is the irony of the prophets is that God sends the prophet to announce, I want to give you clemency. Mm -hmm. And the people say, no, we're going to pass because we actually don't believe we've broken any laws. What do we call it in politics? Uh, A favored nation status, something like that. Yeah. 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 Israel amongst all the nations, Israel. The littlest, the weakest of all the nations has been chosen. Hmm. And yeah. David, the youngest yes. and yeah. the sheep herd. Over and over again, Jacob and so forth. Mm-hmm. So grace, again, to repeat, grace is nothing else. If it is to be most accurately defined, then God's goodwill toward us or the will of God, which has mercy on us. Therefore, the word grace does not mean some quality in us, but rather the very will of God or the goodwill of God toward us. As you noted uh, a bit ago, this is not something that takes place in us, but something that happens outside of us. And it begins uh, not with gift, which he's going to get to in a moment, but rather with uh, God's disposition or his, uh, well, this whole idea of is like, yeah, you can look at me and live. I mean, that's the point. If you don't actually look at him, you won't live. (laughs) Right. Uh, apart um, Apart from Jesus, there is no life. Yeah. Right. Now, the old Adam, on the other hand, wants everything to happen inside of him, including grace. Looking away from God and looking towards oneself. Looking looking at himself in the mirror and saying, what a good boy am I? Mm. What, what do I deserve? I deserve grace and favor. Why? Well, look at what I've done. Look how obedient I've been. Look at what a good boy I've... Like, this is the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. I've done everything you wanted me to do. I've run this farm yeah. just like you would have me run it. And the father has to point out, you came to me and asked me to drop dead so you could get the inheritance. With your brother, yeah. With both of you, both did. Of you did. And you want me to drop dead before I'm actually dead so you can get the inheritance ahead of time. So for all intents and purposes, I'm a dead man walking and I have been since the day I gave you your inheritance. And yet you still behave like a slave, which is doubly damning for the elder brother because one, he's not a slave to begin with. He's the one who's going to inherit the farm and he's been that way all along. But not only does he not recognize the mercy and grace of his father toward him in what he's done. But he also is trapped in this thinking of, well, I'm a slave. There's a way that, that both sons, even though the one, you know, dad's still living on the farm with him, they, right. they keep dad at arm's length, mm-hmm. you know, they, right. uh, you know, out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. Uh, right. You know, just get, get his death over with in a way. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whereas the father is seeking what, uh, really kind of an intimate relationship with them. Not only the right. embrace, but but the uh, the full sonship, you know, and what right. that means. Right. And ever gives up on it, even when they ask, 
you know, to be cut off from it. Right. Mm. Exactly. He never stops looking for his son to walk down the road. Right. And he never stops saying to his elder son, it's your farm. Do with it as you will. And so then the prodigal, the one who returns, is the one who um, seeks, you know, to see this father's face again. What is it from right. uh, from Dark Tower? I'm trying to remember. I have not forgotten the face of my father. Right, right. Mm. Stephen King, for those of you wondering. That's a reference. Stephen King, yeah. yeah. Don't watch the movie, read the book. Oh, good night. The movie's horrible. Yeah, they really dropped the ball on that one. So then number two, Paul in Romans 5 chapter or verse 15 distinguishes grace from the gift of grace for if many died through one man's trespass much more have the grace of god and the free gift in the grace of that one man jesus christ abounded for many he calls grace the favor of god in which he embraced christ and in christ and because of christ all the saints therefore because he favors God cannot help pouring out his gifts on those on whom he has had mercy. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Yeah. This is, the, the gifts are a result of his character and his right. disposition. How does he show us favor? How does he befriend us? Through Christ. He embraces us through Christ. He gives us his son. Right. That's right. And in Christ, therefore, as a consequence, and because of Christ, all of his favors, all of his gifts are poured out upon us mm -hmm. because that's, as you noted, his character. <laughs> that's who he is. Faithful, loving kindness. Right. In like manner, Philip continues, men help along with the affairs of those whom they favor and share with them what they have. But the gift of God is the Holy Spirit himself, whom God has poured out into their hearts. John chapter 20, verse 22 he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verse 15 and following, you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit. Moreover, the works of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the saints are faith, peace, joy, love, etc. As Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and following points out, it is strange how superciliously the sophists treat Peter Lombard because he occasionally identified grace with the Holy Spirit rather than with that fictitious Parisian quality. For he thought much more correctly than they on these matters. Does he have a problem with Paris? What's the problem with Paris? Oh my goodness. Luther and Melanchthon both. It's the university. That's the reason, right? Yes. Yes. It's He's talking about the University of Paris. Huh. Yeah, uh, this is an interesting point because I, I made the same thing in, a ser in my sermon yesterday. That um, you know, because grace can be defined in different ways by different folks. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I think our confessions are careful. They actually don't use the term means of grace. They use right. the term means of the spirit. Right. Yeah. So God's God is gracious, thereby sends His Spirit, and His Spirit works through means. Mm -hmm. And and of course, those the way the Spirit works through the means is a way of receiving. The gracious character of God, the gifts of right. God that, that stem from his grace. Well, it's the reason that we call it the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. It is the Lord's Prayer, and likewise, the Lord's Supper. It is the Lord's Supper. Not only do we receive the Lord, but it's from the Lord. Right. Mm -hmm. But we're naming, the church has named the object, the, or I'm sorry, the subject. The Spirit is the means of the Spirit. The subject is the Spirit, not grace. Mm -hmm. Jesus as the Lord <laughs> comes to us and says, this is my body, this is my blood. He's the acting subject and we are the passive receivers. We are the objects that receive that action. Likewise, the means of the spirit, we are the receivers of the action of that subject who is God's spirit. Yeah. This drives us nuts in our sinfulness. That it's the it's actually all the things that we hope for uh, to find in ourselves are worked in us by the spirit right. who is given to us because God is favorable to us. Well, this is the original sin. Hmm. is to reach and take what is not given to us in the way of gift. And the reason, as soon as she reach out, reaches out and takes that fruit, she acts for herself. She is no longer the object that receives the action of God's work, but she becomes the subject. She becomes the actor who reaches out and takes the object for herself. And she had, she had, she was actually denying the spirit because she had the spirit. God breathed the spirit upon right. them, gave right. them life. Yeah. yeah. And that's the problem is that, and by problem, I mean, that's our sin, mm -hmm. is that we want to act. We want to be the subjects of the verb. 
That's what selfishness is. That's what sin is. So in a, in a broad sense, uh, to be God in God's place, in a more specific sense, uh, place actually to say, namely, to sin against the Holy Spirit, the one who says, right. uh, God is favorable to you and, and, and he gives you these gifts um, because right. he's favorable to you. And you say, well, I want other gifts or I want to do it myself and I don't need right. you. That's why the old Adam prefers abstract terms because it muddies the theological water. I think we talked about that in terms of like speaking of God's characteristics rather than speaking of God's actions. Right. You know, he's ineffable and right. he's almighty. We're like, well, Omniscient, omnipotent. Yeah. Yeah. If he's all, how is he almighty? Right. You know, how does he exercise that almightiness? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Because it's not in the way that we expect. You know, that's where we need to put your attention. Otherwise, it's just like, oh, he's just, my God, that's so great. He is so big and so awesome. There's nothing my right. God cannot do. Uh, right. Well, then what has he done? <laughs> right. Let's actually define that. Um, so you know where to find him. Yes. So number three, Philip continues. But we have made the terminology of the word grace as simple as possible. Following the phraseology of scripture, which says that grace is the favor, mercy, and gratuitous goodwill of God toward us. The gift is the Holy Spirit himself, whom he pours into the hearts of those on whom he has had mercy. That sentence cannot be emphasized enough. I'm going to reread it. The gift is the Holy Spirit himself, whom he pours into the hearts of those on whom he has had mercy. That's what grace is. That's what favor means. And then what's the Spirit's job? To reveal right. the Son. Right. And then the fruits of the Spirit are faith, hope, love, and the remaining virtues, theological virtues in this case. Mm -hmm. But notice how he comes back to what he started with in the introduction, which is that faith, hope, and love, and you noted this, they're not qualities that reside in our soul, and they just are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come in and get them going again. Like they just need some gas and then we can restart the engine. But you know something about trying to light a fire with gasoline. <laughs> right. Yeah. It'll burn off half your face. It's not a, not a good situation. Oh, I can still see it in my mind's eye. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. No, that's why there's a bird bath where there was a fire pit. <laughs> a little bit of post-traumatic stress from that situation. Water replaces the fire. Good plan. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's something biblical in that too. Mm -hmm. But the gift is the Holy Spirit himself. The fruits of the Spirit that are faith, hope, love, and the other theological virtues, fruits of the Spirit, go read Galatians. Right. Point being, though, these aren't things that are just in you waiting for the Holy Spirit to come along and awaken in you. There's no aha moment where you you had a little bit of faith. It was kind of dormant. It, mm. was, it was hibernating. And then the Holy Spirit comes along and goes, hey, here, let me give, let me give you a little, a little leg up. Let me give you a little injection of grace to really get that faith going. No. There is no faith, there is no hope, there's no love, there's no theological virtues in you until the Holy Spirit is given to you, poured into your heart by the Father. And I would say properly speaking, I mean, there is something in this world called faith or hope or love. Oh, absolutely. Right, but they are not the, theolo the very specific faith, hope, and love that we have in Christ, right? They right. are what, I have faith in myself or I have faith in humanity, yeah, I believe that my wife loves me. I believe in the permanency of my children. I have faith that if I do a good job, I'll get paid. Yeah, love is like what attraction or service or something. Yeah, dedication even. Dedication, yeah. absolutely. Hope is like well wishes. You know, like it's optimism. Optimistic. It's, it's the ex it's the expectancy of something to happen in the future. Whereas the scriptures would say of hope, um, what? They're all synonyms for Jesus. Yeah and things unseen right mm. all of these words have a body attached to them <laughs> the, that's our problem is that we want these words to be disembodied ideas god is love well what does that mean jesus is right love. god is love jesus is god therefore <laughs> hmm jesus must be love yeah, you can really replace uh, any of these terms with jesus right uh, and you have the proper definition right your faith has made you well is the same as saying your jesus has made you well mm-hmm because who made him well, in which he then responds with an act, of, a confession of faith. They all have objects. Maybe that's a good way to put it too. I mean, yes. you don't just hope, yeah. you hope in. Right, the person. Your resurrection, which is yours in Christ's resurrection. Right, exactly. You, you don't just love, you love. Yeah, resurrection isn't a thing. That's why he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> he takes yeah. it into himself right there. Right. Exactly. It's like, no. When, and the last day, you won't just get up out of your grave and look around and go, what happened? <laughs> you'll get up out of your grave and Jesus will be standing there and saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And you'll say, well, yeah, obviously. Amen. <laughs> Amen. That's the way this works. I've been waiting. That's why, bap- yeah. that's why baptism is so important because at the last day when the judgment comes, it's not as if you're going to stand there and form a rebuttal or have a list on hand to say, well, I mean, I did have some good qualities after all. No, you'll stand <laughs> up and the mark that is placed on your forehead and on your lips and on your heart at that moment at the font will shine brighter than the sun. Hmm. And you won't have to justify yourself because you're already justified. Like Harry Potter. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> and Jesus will look like Dumbledore. <laughs> It'll be a, uh, what is it? Uh, the station. I forget the name of the station. <sighs> right. I'll transcend right. it in white now. Anyway. Yes. Gandalf the white. You do realize that all of Harry Potter is just her lifting the greatest hits from all the other great fantasy mm-hmm. <laughs> series. And mixed in with a little Catholicism, which of course it's they had the, to. Right. It's just the genius of J.K. Rowling to be like, I'll just take the very best from everything else and then synthesize it. It's very postmodern. I mean, Tolkien did that too. Let's not, let's be honest. I mean, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit is nothing but him ripping off Beowulf wholesale. Well, and for her, writing that book was her way, um, she was trying to address the death of her mother. Right. So the the trauma of that and looking for hopefulness in that and then, yeah. you know, doing it through yeah. a narrative fiction. Uh, yep. I get it. I get it. Yep. 100%. So that's it, that the Holy Spirit is the gift and it is the Holy Spirit who actually creates the gifts. And the Holy Spirit is the gift that regenerates and sanctifies hearts in accordance with Psalm 104, verse 30. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Again, this is so important. To sum it all up, grace is nothing but the forgiveness or remission of sins. Mm -hmm. Faith, hope, and love is nothing but the fruit which the spirit creates. Favor or grace is nothing other than the Holy Spirit himself being poured into our hearts. And then as a consequence, to sum it all up, grace is nothing but forgiveness and remission of sins. The Holy Spirit is the gift that regenerates and sanctifies hearts. Yeah. Who is the one who give, who who is the grace? The Holy Spirit. Who is the gift? The Holy Spirit. Who regenerates and makes us new people? The Holy Spirit. Who makes us holy? The Holy Spirit. Well, and if you want to understand the mechanics of resurrection, uh, just go to Genesis. He takes right. the dust, he forms it, mm-hmm. and he breathes on it. Right. That's the mechan- the mechanism of creation is the mechanism of recreation. I was going to I, I I point this out quite often is that if you read the prophets specifically Isaiah, mm-hmm. the, and this is how Israelites tell time. By the way, is that you have to go backwards in order to tell the future, and there's an overlap there in the present tense. Isaiah's image of heaven is Genesis chapter two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to a T. <laughs> in in fact, all of the prophets when they speak of the that last day. Notice the language is always Genesis 2 language. Mm. And I think our churches have reflected that. I mean, there is the, it's maybe a little bit of paganism in the background too, but the the old German tradition of planting a church grove. Right. So you walk amongst the garden, you know? Right. That your church is in a garden. Like, Mm -hmm. hmm, I wonder where they get that idea. Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. I like it. The gospel promises grace as well as the gift of grace. We actually have a garden planted around our church, but uh, they're actually the seeds of of the deceased <laughs> right. planted in the ground, and they'll be raised imperishable on right. the last day. Hmm. I got to read this again. This is so good. I know. He's, you he's keep reading it. it. Just keep reading it. I know. It. It's just so good. To sum it all up, grace is nothing but the forgiveness or remission of sins. The Holy Spirit is the gift that regenerates and sanctifies the heart, as Psalm 104 verse 30 says. The gospel promises grace as well as the gift of grace. So not only does it promise the forgiveness of sin, but it gives you the forgiveness of sin. And I think that word regenerate is essential. Um, yes. Because we're talking about regenesising, <laughs> yes, if you like. Exactly. Yeah. This is not beginning. This is not something you have. This is something that that that's com- actually completely new to you. It has to be right. regenerated. New beginning. Genesis mm-hmm. beginning. So then he says the scriptures are plain on this, and therefore it seems enough to cite one passage. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them. In that, we go, we'll talk about that. Torah, yeah. It's Torah or word, teaching, Jesus. And I will write it upon their hearts. 
After those days, says the Lord, I will put Torah within them. That is, I will put my word, my teaching within them, and I will write it upon their hearts. These words certainly refer to the gift of grace and the words following them to grace itself. Verse 34, quote, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's the only way to restore a relationship. I mean, not only between God and, and us, but also um, between one another is in the forgiveness of sins, for, forgetting sin, right? Remembering it no more. Right, 100%. Forgiving iniquity. Right. Um, because the thing that actually breaks every relationship, earthly and heavenly, is is sin, is actually... I was going to say, I posted that this morning. I, I read a, a short piece by Nelson Mandela, mm. and he, he made the statement... Resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. Rather than actually reconcile with them, just hope right. they die. Yeah, exactly. I will forgive you and then wait for you to die. Hmm. And he knew something of resentment, I imagine. How long was he in prison? Bit. A little while. A couple decades. 28 yeah. years or something like that? 32 yeah. years? Yeah. Something thereabouts. But in the end, Desmond Tutu started the Faith and Reconciliation program where he said, we're not going to punish the white people. We're not going to punish the Dutch. We're going to sit down together. And we're going to forgive each other and we're going to move on together. That's the only way to heal this country's pain, the open wound of apartheid. I was listening to an interview about the Civil War, um, uh, and yeah. particularly about, uh, I think it was hmm, Jackson, maybe. I can't remember. And uh, some of the policies after the Civil War. And I don't know that they actually really ever did that. You mean the Reconstruction Program? Exactly. That that really wasn't Reconstruction? Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it no, it, no, it wasn't it was, like the Marshall Plan. They, yes, the generals met together, um, but why, I mean, why did it take so long for, like, say, civil rights? Mm -hmm. It's because they actually had never really dealt with it, right? Nor did they want to. Mm -mm, no, Lincoln freed the slaves because, well, they needed more soldiers. It's politically expedient. Yeah, yes, it was hundred percent. Go watch Ken Burns' Civil War documentary. He really nails this. Mm -hmm. Does a good job of it. But that is the trouble. Is that the old Adam wants the law to predominate the conversation, but not, again, the law preached lawfully, not the law, as Philip points out, the knowledge of sin. The yeah. law reveals, the, brings us to the knowledge of sin. The old Adam wants the law to reveal to us the knowledge of how do I be a, a good boy and mm -hmm. obey the rules so that I can get the reward. Or um, the law preached in such a way that everyone else is excluded, but you're included. Yeah, the we, they mentality. You're right, right. So, um, yeah, I don't mind, God, if you preach the law, as long as it um, damns them. Uh, right. But yeah. God forbid it damn me. Right. So long as I'm in the ark, I could care less. <laughs> it's interesting because, yeah, Noah doesn't really actually, uh, he doesn't go begging and pleading the way, like, I don't know, Abraham does, um, mm -hmm. you know, for right. Sodom. Well, I always joke around when I teach on, on Noah that it took him 100 years to build that thing. So every day for 100 years, he's going out with his sons to work on the ark. And I always make the joke, every morning he'd walk out in the morning and Steve's out there on, on the deck with his coffee. Morning, Noah. Morning, Steve. You going to go build that boat again today? It's an <laughs> ark, Steve. You going to go build that ark again today, Noah? Yeah. So you still think water's going to fall out of the sky and kill us all? Yeah, God said so. All right, well, have fun with that, Noah. All right, I'll see you, Steve. And then the day came and, well, Steve drowned. <laughs> <laughs> Steve's dead. Steve's dead. Because he didn't listen. No, but I think they, I mean, it was more, what was it, uh, Bruce Almighty or something, right? Just the more mocking uh, right. of Noah. Yeah, I mean, it had that had to be a little rough. To be fair, water had never fallen out of the sky at that point. Uh, no, they, they might have known something of boats, I guess, from water, groundwater. Well, yeah, you had aquifers that gave them their water, but. Not a boat th like that. Like, it's like saying fire will fall from the sky and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Well, that's never happened before. Therefore, in a certain sense, you can kind of forgive their willful ignorance mm -hmm. versus building a city at the base of Mount Rainier, which is an active volcano, and, and seismologists go, it's going to explode. Like, that's kind of unforgivable. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. you know, and then you put nuclear waste in the volcano. That's also very bad. <laughs> but you actually see this in the history of Israel. I mean, the, the, um, the flood becomes like archetypal. It's in the background yes. all the time. All over the place, right. Yeah, with water, when it, whenever there's water mm -hmm. and death and judgment yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, right. And fire from heaven, it works that way too. Right. You know, that God, uh, you know, will 
can judge in this way. It, they don't right. forget. Right. It ends up being, you know, a predominant possibility. We'll just put it that way. I was going to say, speaking of nuclear waste, in the 50s and 60s, with the threat, with the Cold War, with the threat of nuclear Armageddon, a, a lot of people believed, especially a lot of street preachers and televangelists mm -hmm. believed that these nuclear missiles would turn the sky to fire. And that would be the judgment of God, fire from the sky, falling, fire falling from the sky. And Seems I think- reasonable, it, actually. At that time, of course it does. Mm -hmm. Because when you know you can blow up the world 24 times over or whatever it was when I was in fourth grade and we were told that. Can't remember the stats, yeah. And even in fourth grade, I was like, isn't once good enough? <laughs> like, how can you blow up the world more than once? I think we, uh, yeah, overachieved here a little bit. A little bit. But the point being is, just like it is in the days of Noah, and what does Jesus say? just as it was in the days of Noah. Mm. And what will pregnant woman will beg God to, to basically drop a mountain on top of them. That's <laughs> to hide, and people, you know, pregnant women will flee to the hills and, and lament their pregnancy. And men will flee and beg that God drop mountains on top of them to hide them from what's come, from the judgment to come. Versus what Philip is pointing out is that that's not the preeminent word of God. Nope. Or that is the preeminent word. That's not the imminent word of God. Mm -hmm. The imminent word, the proper work of God is gospel, promise. That's why it's called alien and proper. I will put my law within them, write it on their hearts. Right. And they will I know will put me. put my Torah in them. This is a fulfillment of the first commandment, right? I will be exactly. their God. Yeah. And that's a promise. You mm -hmm. will have no other gods before my face. Mm -hmm. It's not a command. It's a promise. That's why they're called devarim, not misvah, words. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get it wrong. The old Adam always wants law to be law, but not again, law preached lawfully, but just law in the sense of what do I need to do to be a good boy, show you I'm a good boy and deserve a reward versus God's law, which is actually it's much worse than you could have imagined. Here, let me show you. You started talking about uh, law here uh, in the translation being, you know, Torah, and then you mm -hmm. even mentioned Jesus. Yeah. And uh, maybe it's worth expanding that out a little bit. Uh, I was I was talking liturgy. I was just an offhand comment in a mm -hmm. Bible class, and you can look at Acts and you can see this. And I think it carried forth in the church is that they, the the scriptures they heard read, unlike us where we heard like an epistolal gospel, they yeah. heard the Old Testament, then they heard the mm -hmm. words of Jesus gospel, right. and then you heard preaching. You know, epistle was mm -hmm. last basically. If you want to put it in that context, where they would explain sure. Jesus fulfilled. God's word. He is the fulfillment right. of the gospel is Jesus is Torah. He is Torah. What you yeah. you heard it said, and I say to you. I mean how Jesus does it himself, right? Right. Right. He says, You heard these words, and this is what they were about. Yeah. All scripture testifies of me. Right. All of it. This is why you can't really you can't legitimately, I would argue, follow the teaching of the rabbis or the Jews on the Old Testament because they don't believe that this man, Jesus, is Torah. Mm -mm. They believe Torah is the teachings of God communicated through his prophets, through Moses. We believe Torah is the person, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And that's why Jesus, when he comes, and it's recorded in the Gospels, and as you said, in the epistles and following, Jesus is true Israel. Paul points this out in Romans. Mm -hmm. Jesus is Torah. He points this out about himself. I am the word of God, John chapter 1. It goes back to what we said about faith, hope, and love being synonyms for Jesus. Yeah. All of these words are simply pointing to the word of God, who is the son. Mm. And therefore, it's like saying like the, the, the last supper is a Seder meal. And so we're going to have a Seder meal at church for Monday, Thursday. No, you're not. Because you're reading the scriptures as a rabbi would read them then and then trying to shoehorn Jesus in. That's why it's called a New Testament, not, a, not an addition. Yeah, that's right. Not the Old Testament plus that's one. All of scripture does not point us to a Seder meal. All of scripture points us to the body and blood of Jesus. Yeah, so he is the, uh, maybe sounds a little flippant, but uh, the the secret decoder ring. I, you read, according to Jesus, the, the, the Old Testament, and you actually find, uh, we call this hermeneutics, right? Mm -hmm. But you actually find that the whole Old Testament is about death and resurrection. It's about forgiveness right. of sins. It's right. about being restored to God. Mm -hmm. it, whether it's his people, whether it's individuals, right. whether it's families, over and over, that's what we see. I'm being brought out of exile, bringing and into a gracious right. rolling with God again. Right. That's the story of the Bible. And this goes back to the gift of the Spirit, is that the Spirit exegetes mm. 
God's word for us, because to be blunt, to use Luther's language from the Genesis lectures, sin has made us so stupid that we can't even recognize God when he's right in front of us. So in fairness, um, I don't know if we can, if it's too much to question uh, Aquinas's faith, but but the Thomists, the Sophists, they, they're approaching the Bible apart from the Spirit. Right. Yeah, they're trying to read it, ad, what is it called? Ad mixtum Aristotelae, oh, as Luther there would you say. Go. Okay. Is that they're trying to mix in Aristotle, they're trying to mix in worldly wisdom with the word of God, and it, it, it's oil and water. It's old wineskins with new wine in it. And as every one of our catechumens are taught in third article, uh, you right. cannot with your own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ or come to him. Right. And maybe that's the best way to explain that Seder meal thing too is the Seder meal is an old wineskin, mm-hmm. right. and Jesus is new wine. Well, that's why it, it, it can't work. We were studying, when I was talking about liturgy on Sunday, we were actually studying the driving out of the money changers and the animals in the temple. And mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the ironies, this is John chapter 2, uh, we're studying it from John anyway, is that the Lamb of God, who we've just heard confessed repeatedly in chapter one, is the one driving out the sheep right. that are in the temple. Right. So, I mean, he's taking, literally taking their place, saying, this is done. This is yeah. over. My ministry mm-hmm. is about the end of the shadow and right. the coming of the light. Right. Mm. We talk about the, you and I talk about that all the time, that in the Old Testament, God is both giver and gift. He is the, giving the sacrifice and he is locating himself in the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is Jesus. Yeah, promise. The son is the sacrifice. Behold the lamb of God. And then he comes and says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's no life in you. That is, apart from faith, there's no life in you. And then of course, with um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and First Corinthians, literally receiving his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. And that's kind of Melanchthon's point here is that the Holy Spirit is not just given, but then when he's given, he is the giver of the gifts. Yeah, and he can say, uh, yeah, that circumcision thing's done. Now it's baptism, right? Like, like the apostle teaches. Right. right, and therefore, when Jesus breathes on the disciples at the end of Luke and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and their mind were enlightened to understand all of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. That's the point, is that you go back in and go, oh, there's more than just prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. It's actually the Messiah himself who is prophesying about himself through these instruments, his prophets, his patriarchs, yeah. his preachers. All people, all times are being ordered towards that, right. towards the giving of the Son. Right, which to the regenerate is nothing but good news from sun up to sundown. To the old Adam, it's a curse hmm. because there's no room for him anymore. Well, that's what I say. You want to be the actor in the salvation story. And it's like, no, there's one, there's one savior and he's, he's, he's it. Right. Versus the sinner who needs saving. Yeah. To be blunt, Jesus is the knight in shining armor and we're the princess in every one of these scenarios. <laughs> well, it's his story. It's not our story. Right. Right. It, 100%. It's his story of saving us, right? We're right. the object, we're the recipient, but, right. but it's his, it's, it's his from start to finish. Which is why the gospel is different than every other confession of every religion ever invented. Every religion ever invented has us having to do something to get to God. We're the agents. We're the agents. Christianity is the only confession that claims that God is the agent who comes and finds us. Mm. The only one. And of course, notice then what we do in our sinfulness. We want to bring in, shoehorn in all those other religions just to make a little bit of room for us. Well, what do I get to do here? You get to sin. <laughs> well, what about over here? You get to rebel. Well, what about this? That's unbelief. Well, what's left for me to do? Die, actually. Mm-hmm. So that you can be raised from the <laughs> just dead. Just give up. <laughs> yeah, just give up, right? Just, yeah, you can push all your chips to the middle of the table and God says, yeah, I don't, I don't play that game. Yeah, all in. And he just turns the table over as he did. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> So next episode, we're going to dive into justification and faith. So if you thought that grace was was uh, intense, just wait until Melanchthon gets into justification and faith. Grace was approximately two pages. Justification and faith is over 10. Yeah. And by justification, I think he already hinted that um, he's using that word al- almost synonymously with righteousness. He's yes, at least putting 100%. the two together, the kaiosune. Right. Yeah. We are hmm. put to death by the law and made alive again by the word of grace promised in Christ. That's justification. <laughs> I just, I love those, uh, what, do you, what do you, we call them mic drops, right? Yeah. But like we started this section, just as the law is the knowledge of sin, so the gospel is the promise of grace and righteousness. Yeah. It's like, keep it simple, right? Right. I mean, we, we joke about bumper sticker theology mm-hmm. or theology that fits in a Twitter, like a tweet, but 
Melanchthon is just dropping these bombs, these theological word bombs, just sentence after sentence after sentence, just quick, precise, brief, just just like a scalpel. He's like a surgeon with a scalpel. He never cuts away any tissue that doesn't need cutting away. Mm-hmm. Only the dead tissue gets cut away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's essentially saying all these theologians, for all their learning and knowledge, are just, they're using a club to operate on a, on a, a bunion. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you for all that you do to support this podcast and all the work we do at Higher Things. Enjoy the conferences this summer. God bless you and keep you safe and uh, whole. Hope nobody falls into a manhole on a Thursday afternoon or gets burned or anything like that or sets a dorm on fire or floods a classroom. Or has a, what, a llama spit on them? Has a llama spit on them. All Thursday activities in the past. (laughs) But we truly love you for all that you do to help support us and all of the work at Higher Things. And so uh, thank you from all of us. Thank you for giving us your time and listening to this podcast. And we'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Peace. Peace.